You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Monday morning. You're listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey with your host, Tom Crea. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. William Seidman, co-author of The Star Factor. Discover what top performers do differently and inspire a new level of greatness in all. Last week, we talked to Carol Sanford, the author of No More Feedback. Next week, we're going to speak with Bill Protzman, the author of The Human Factor. You can find everything related to this show at yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. You can check out the schedule and see who's next, catch up any episodes you might have missed, and continue the discussion with like-minded individuals in our LinkedIn group. And if you've just joined us, again, that website is yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. So why did I think a chat with Bill about purpose-driven culture would be good for anyone interested in leadership? Well, I'm biased, and I honestly believe I'm a product of the best leadership developing developing culture in the world, and that's the United States Army. And as I was reading Bill's book, he captured so many things that I thought were characteristic of the things that we did, and I would hope that everybody can deliver and execute that as well. So let's talk a little bit about Bill. I'll give you his biography, a little bit of it, and we'll let him expand on that. Now, Bill is a... uh, He's in research and he's got an in-depth understanding of neural processes required to discover and use expert wisdom to guide organizational transformations and create extraordinary organizational performance. And I'm going to let him expand on that. And he's also developed this uh, neuroscience-based Sophia technology in addition to his book. So first, let me give extend a warm welcome to Bill. Bill, thanks for being here with us this morning. Thank you for having me here. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and expand on that introduction and what you'd like to say about the neuroscience research you're doing or Sophia, whatever, you, whatever you'd like. I think the place to start is, is the key thing is this notion of purpose-driven leadership and what purpose means in organization. Thomas, you know, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about your military background and what it meant to have purpose. And what has come out even uh, quite a bit more since the book was written, the book was actually finished in 2014. But since then, there's been this explosion of neuroscience research about brain function associated with having a compelling purpose and about performance associated with having a compelling purpose. So I think the first thing to do is to start with, what do you mean by compelling purpose? And how does that relate to top performance? So, When we started to work with top performers, what we found out is that the key thing for all of them is that they had a compelling reason, what they call purpose now, for doing something. And this was all about creating a greater social good, something beyond themselves, something for the team, something for society, something for clients. Um, as as a, an example of one of the, the places where purpose turns out to be most important but least understood, think about sales environments. Almost everybody thinks that sales environments are driven by financial motives, by competition between salespeople. But what if you really start to think about what your experiences are with salespeople, the salespeople that you tend to resonate the best with are ones who really care about you. 
ones that really kind of support what you want to do, how you want to do it, and ones that bring their whole team in a very collaborative way to bear. And so you have this evidence that comes out that even in the environments that are uh, considered to be the least purpose-driven, having a greater social good turns out to be a primary motivator of behavior. Um, And I want to come back to something we talked about, Tom, in terms of purpose in the military. Not everybody. So if you don't mind, I'm going to interrupt. Sure, and I know you have to share with the listeners. Sure. Bill and I had a conversation a couple of days <laughs> ago. Of course, after I reviewed his book, we, we had our pre-conversation. We chatted. So when he refers to that, we had that conversation. So I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Yeah. So I'm sorry to jump to a conclusion on that. Um, so um, I, I don't know whether all your listeners know, but, you know, Tom has a background in terms of military, in terms of um, helping develop people in, in reserve officer training programs and things like that. And what became clear to me is that, Tom, you yourself have a compelling purpose. And that motivated me. That creates a kind of resonance with people. And there's a bunch of neuroscience around that because you see yourself as creating a greater social good. And for all the listeners, what we found is top performers in every single environment are always about creating a greater social good. It is never selfish. It is always humble. So if you think of top performers as celebrities who are self-centered, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who really are pretty humble and create the greater social good. Now, just to expand on that a little bit. So the book was finished in 2014, and we're already kind of going down that route. What has happened since then is is this deeper understanding of what happens to to our brain function when we are engaged with a compelling purpose. So when you are actually consciously and systematically working towards creating the greater social good, it turns out there's a release of dopamine and endorphins in the brain, which create a sense of greater confidence. If you write about the uh, greater social good, it turns out that the act of writing suppresses portions of the brain associated with fear and resistance to achieving something extraordinary and stimulates portions of the brain associated with uh, a sense of control. So not only do you want to create a greater social good, but you have a, a sense of control in achieving it. And if you then talk about it with people, um, about your purpose and you have a peer group associated that releases social neurochemicals, serotonin and oxytocin that uh, create a sense of this purpose is about something greater than me. And so when you focus on purpose, you very actually, you very quickly create this deep neural bath of engagement that people really want to do something important and have value. And of course, it then becomes much easier to lead the organization, much easier for you to stay sane, much easier to deal with uncertainty and, and volatility in the environment because you literally are more neurally robust in terms of responding to these things. So I've been running on a little bit. I'm going to pause. No, no, no. That's great. Look, so, but I, well, here's what I want to do. I, I actually want to revisit some of the things you just said and, and sure. apply some practical examples for the listeners. And, and, and so let me rewind a little bit. When you said it, the, the book was in 2014, I actually was not aware of that until a couple of weeks ago because um, at any rate, I, so I read another article that you wrote in 2017 and we're going to talk about that as well. But when you talk about compelling purpose of top performers, here's something that's important for you to be able to share with the listeners. The majority of listeners, at least the, hopefully the people that I've tracked 
are those who believe in servant leadership. In the sure. LinkedIn group that I have on, uh, it's called Your Evolving Leadership Journey Now. Yeah. It used to yeah. be just called Servant Leadership Development. And the people who are attracted to the group are wanting to be leaders and wanting to lead for the reasons that a servant leader would feel passionate about. And so, yes, when you talked about how my feel or my need or how I felt in ROTC, um, for the listeners, just for your awareness, you know, my job in ROTC and running that program and my final job in the service was to be able to take high school students and with the cadre of officers that was given to me, we were going to transform them into combat officers, people who were going to put their lives on the line if necessary. And and there was a very serious uh, mindset and attitude that goes in there. And um, so... So that in, in our in my mind, that, that greater good is, you know, protecting the nation, that sort of thing. Not everybody agrees, but that's fine. Uh, the point is this for me as the as the host here and Bill can comment on this. Whatever you choose. I mean, I first think about it in terms of being passionate about what you do. Um, but when he's talking about a compelling purpose, that expands this definition. And I don't want to take your steal your thunder. But could you talk about being passionate about your work versus compelling purpose? Um, actually, they're they're very tightly related. Okay. Um, so it, it turns out that what people get passionate about is the compelling purpose. And um, when you have a compelling purpose, you tend to be passionate. One of the interesting things about leadership and organization is for a long time, it was believed that you could not, that, that people were born with passion for things. Okay. But it turns out that that's really not supported by the science. Um, that people literally can be educated and become engaged with um, a, a wide variety of passionate things when the purpose has a certain type of quality to it, when it is about creating a contextually sensitive social good. I am not talking about lame mission statements here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am talking about this gut level commitment to achieving something of great value that you personally see as value, that it's easy to become passionate about. And it turns out that that when you have that and when you give others an opportunity to develop their own sense of aligned purpose and to interact with that purpose, they will develop the same passion and they will develop because of these neural effects. They will have the dopamine release. If they write it, they will suppress the resistance to the idea. If they talk about it with others, they will have the serotonin and oxytocin release. And so you can see people literally becoming intensely passionate where before they weren't. Now, let me put a caveat on this. Um, There is no universal uh, kind of Judeo-Christian, if you will, notion of, of, of this passion and this purpose. When you talk about servant leadership, certainly one of the main genesis and thrusts of service leadership was the Christian community. Um, it's really, in the best sense of servant leadership, throughout anything you do, it has the same properties. There's a kind of humility to it. Um, it, it what but again, people often say, well, you talk about star, star performers. The star factor is the name of the book. Well, I think of stars as being these kind of egocentric people. Turns out the top performers are not that. They are never that. <laughs> um, they are, in fact, exceedingly humble. They are very committed. They are very open to other perspectives. They are very willing to share with others. And they like to see the collective 
success going forward. So in terms of servant leadership, the main tenets are this kind of humility, the support for others, creating a greater social good. That is exactly what we're talking about. But we are talking about it as a very individual thing. So I could say, the example I often give is, think of Robin Hood, right? Mm -hmm. For some people, Robin Hood was a hero of social equality. (laughs) You know, you know, steal from the rich and give to the poor. And he right. was supporting people in here. For other people, it's just a flat-out thief. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, let's get back to uh, – I want to sure. – I'm going to keep going back to a practical example because sure. you've got so much information. And, and, and when Bill and I were talking the other day, we were talking about how we um, – for example, we got people to be more comfortable standing in front of a group and speaking. Sure. And, um, and, and that, should, that might seem like a simple task, but I got to tell you, if when you – Public speaking is a fear of many, many people, and we have to get our future lieutenants to overcome that challenge. So let's say you wanted to get somebody to overcome that challenge. Now, we had the the easiest and most basic thing is we had physical fitness three days a week, and the person who was leading that event got to – he got – he or she got to witness that as a freshman, as a sophomore, and maybe they got a chance to lead as a sophomore, but they definitely were going to lead as a junior because they had to get ready um, for our national advance camp at the end of that junior year. And, and as they got in front of that, um, so now we're putting them in an environment, and this goes to Bill's research, where you're, you're placing them in an environment where they're actually going to be practicing and experience it. And so with that, Bill, I'm going to turn it back over to you and explain how that person who's now thrust in that position is going to get the opportunity to be seen, observed, what that does for their ability to retain information and why that's so important. Sure. So I'm going to borrow from uh, work from a guy named Dan Pink. Okay. Uh, Dan Pink I is Dan a, Pink. but I love him too. mastery purpose. Yeah. So I don't know if you noticed, but Dan Pink actually um, wrote an endorsement at Star Factor. Oh, it's on the back I of the book. That. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so, and Dan Pink in, in Drive, um, which book he wrote about 2009, 2010, he does what I think is the best summary of the research on motivation. Anyway, okay. and in the book, he always talks about basically three things that drive motivation once you have taken care of sort of fundamental financial needs. And he always talks about them this way. He says, what motivates people once you're going to financially secure is autonomy, meaning you have control over your work, mastery, meaning you're good at your work, purpose, here we come back to purpose, meaning you have a compelling reason to do the work. And he always presents them in that way. Mm -hmm. And our discussion with Pink was, your categories are right, but your order is wrong, and the order really matters. Okay. Okay. And the order is people do things because of a compelling purpose. This is the big reason they're doing. Simon Sinek wrote a, a book on that, too, about, you know, start with why. And it's the compelling reason for doing these things. I have to interrupt. You want to know what I love about Simon Sinek? Sure. He gets some of his best examples from the military. For example, does. The, right. the captain who kisses the soldier, the wounded soldier before he's medevaced. Yeah. At any rate, I won't belabor that at point. <laughs> sure. Well, but that's going to feed into some of the, the underlying notion, though, which is um, let's take Pink's notion of those three things and let's flip the order. Okay. The, again, the order really matters. Purpose is your reason for doing things. If you have a compelling purpose, as you see in the military, you hear people in the military talking all the time about the mission and the brotherhood and things like that, you have um, a really strong reason for people to do the next thing, which is mastery. Purpose drives mastery. 
because you want to get good at something. And then the final thing is autonomy. And I think the way to think about that is earned autonomy. What a number of organizations we work with did when Pink first came out with these things is they said, oh, Pink is talking about autonomy. It's it's in the neuroscience, what's called the primacy of position. The first thing you see is what you think is most important going forward. And a lot of organizations said, okay, let's go ahead and give everybody all this authority. Now, think about that for a second. You don't know whether people are aligned on the purpose of the organization. You don't know they're very good at their job. And you're going to say, go make these critical decisions. Didn't work. So the way to think about it is when people have demonstrated that they really are committed to compelling purpose, when they have developed the capability to be great, then they earn the right to make autonomous decisions. Now, let's come back to your example. What you are doing in that environment is the first thing is you're inculcating people with a purpose. There is a reason for doing these things. Mm -hmm. We are about protecting our country. We are about creating the greater good. You know, and as we talk about, it isn't just combat, but the U.S. military does rescue missions, does lots of other things in terms of helping stabilize societies and things like that. It certainly is combat is the central face of it. But it's combat for a particular purpose. It isn't combat, at least we hope, for the sake of having combat. But wait a minute. Even in that example, I was trying to focus on just the ability to to be able to speak in front of a group. I'm going to get to that. Okay. So when you have a compelling purpose, purpose drives mastery. Okay. So what is mastery? Ah, mastery becomes a whole body of skills. Okay. That are about what's speaking in front of the group. It's it's a comfort with your ability to lead. It's a comfort with the ability to give very specific orders under high duress situations. Um, we actually had a discussion with the um, the military long ago about using these uh, techniques, and the the discussion was about um, uh, people patrolling during the height of the Iraq uh, troop uh, deployment, mm-hmm. and how. This thing was so decentralized, you had this kind of earned autonomy. People had to make highly autonomous decisions with a support network behind them. Well, but based on, those decisions were based on mastery of a whole set of underlying principles that said, here's how you think about this. Well, purpose is above that. Purpose drives mastery. And when you talk about learning to speak in front of a group, uh, the multiple things associated with leadership in a highly uncertain environment. Now, uh, military being probably the most uncertain environment, but look at healthcare right now. Mm-hmm. Healthcare has been totally disrupted. How to lead in that environment when literally you don't know what court case is going to mess up with you. Technology. Technology is going to come along. You don't know when somebody's going to introduce something new. I, I'm not going to say even remotely close that it's anything like a military engagement. But from a neural perspective, it turns out it is. Um, well, if you were talking about surgery, I would say, or even brain surgery, I would say that's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty stressful. You know, as, as a side note, you know, um, one of my colleagues, um, her um, uncle was a, uh, a surgeon in emergency departments. Mm-hmm. And my colleague, he came to visit us at work one time and we we're chatting around with him. This kind of interesting person. And my colleague said, I'm under such stress. It's unbelievable. And her uncle said, Where's the blood? I don't see any blood. <laughs> and he said, you don't know from stress. <laughs> and so, but if you then actually, and we've done actually programs uh, using this technique for 
um, uh, conditions and leadership in emergency departments. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the the most successful people see themselves um, as a compelling purpose, and they then learn some specific attitudes and behaviors in support of that. And that's exactly what you did in your ROTC program. You have a compelling purpose over years of development. Um, you a understanding of those skills and attributes that made people successful and develop. And so you, people will, uh, will learn those things vastly faster, like 80% faster. Um, if you have a compelling purpose for doing it, by the way, if you then went to those same people and you said, I'm not going to particularly tell you the reason for doing, giving these orders or why you're standing in a formation the way or it turns out that people's retention of that and learning that is much slower. Mm-hmm. I mean, like substantially slower than if you say the reason you're learning this is right. Here's your context. Cynics. Why? So let me, let me ask you this and pardon the, this, <laughs> this sure. pun here, but what did pink think? You know, I tend to agree with purpose, mastery, autonomy, but what did, what did the experts say? When you told uh, Pink, Pink's actual response was that he um, never meant to imply an order. Okay. That he was talking about them um, in in a category kind of way. Now, the the a lot of the research on primacy of place came out after that, mm-hmm. um, and so you know he wasn't aware. But again, what we saw for the top performers is the top performers were always purpose driven. Purpose drove mastery. Purpose and mastery together created autonomy. So I, I want to comment on that because if anybody is familiar with Blan- Ken Blanchard's situational leadership model, it essentially takes person sure. through the where you're directing that individual who's very, very the newbie, and then they start to get a little more experience, and then you start coaching them, and then as they get more and more comfortable, you 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 become more of a participative manager, and you back off so that they can start doing more things on their own, which is exactly what we did in ROTC, and then finally you delegate. So when you talk about purpose, mastery, autonomy. I mean, it's just crystal clear that what you just said, that reason sure. why that, that order is so important. And I get that. So based on Blanchard's model, do you have anything to add there? Um, yeah. Um, so one of the things we've done since the book started is we really focused in on the issue about what constituted somebody being a great mentor. And the um, notion of, of being a mentor turns out that the first thing great mentors talk about is purpose. They'll say, well, why do you think this is important? What are we doing here? What, what do we achieve? But then they say, now I'm going to guide you through a development process that has a lot of structure to it. Okay. And it turns out that the structure very consistently in looking at how the best mentors do had four component parts to get organized. And then there's some, some supporting parts to each of those things. The first thing is they really hammered in on the correct mental model, that passion you're talking about. Okay. What is it about that makes us important? Let's dig it deeper. Let's personalize it. Let's apply it to the practical situation. Secondly, they would say, here are the basics you need to master, skills and attitudes. Here's the foundational things. That's a lot of what you're doing in ROTC. Then they would say, okay, what are the next level things? How do you advance that uh, going forward? And then the final thing they would focus in on is how do you sustain that and this is kind of language that emerged in the messy real world. Okay. So you can have all these kind of idealized models about what are the basics, 
What are the advanced skills? But you get into the real world and the real world, it's like the, the military thing. You know, how long does a plan survive battle? What is it? 10 seconds or something like that? Right, right. <laughs> so the idea here is that you have the compelling purpose that gives you a framework. Uh-huh. You have the basic skills. You have the advanced skills. But then you get these experience from these mentors about how you do it when things are going wrong. Right. When it's very messy. And so the Blanchard work is actually looking at that kind of thing. It's saying we're going to really start with certain types of basics. We're going to build it up. We're going to build it up. And ultimately, you get to the messy real world. Okay. So we're approaching a break. So I want to ask sure. you a softer question. Sure. Um, <laughs> It, it, and so we can get into the break, and um, and then we'll pick up with some uh, heavier material. And one of those things that I want to talk to you about is um, we talked about this on Monday, and that was the issue of the ten thousand hours and what it sure. takes to learn. But but here's here's the thing. Um, what I would share with the what I would ask you to. to comment on is as you were talking I was writing down you know when it comes to surgery for instance those checklists I'm not sure whether or not it came from the airline industry or whatever but I know as an army helicopter pilot we had checklists we had to use and operate by it didn't matter if we did it a hundred times or a thousand times every time you went and flew the helicopter you had to do a pre-flight post-flight in in a through flight and an in-flight we had all checklists for everything and i believe that from the airline industry that went transferred over to the surgeons and that prevented them from leaving tools and utensils inside of uh, people's bodies and stuff like that but but it's it's super important we also would call those battle drills in the military where how do you operate under intense pressure because you've done it so you've done it the same way so many times uh, and it became a battle drill. So we've only got a couple minutes to break. So go ahead and give a quick thought and we'll pick up afterwards. Yeah. So um, there's, there's no value in sort of replicating at a judgment level that which can be done by rote. Okay. Now it turns out, so those checklists are immensely valuable. You almost have to think of them as a liberating force. Okay. Oh, they were. <laughs> you know, because what you want to do is to free people from the rote stuff to make good judgments. Mm-hmm. And particularly judgments under pressure, under uncertainty, and so on. So you don't want to have to worry about that. The problem becomes how do you best learn that rote stuff? How do you rationalize the rote stuff? Now, in pursuit of purpose, the top performers, they go through and rationalize every single thing they can because they don't want to be spending their time on the road stuff. Frankly, it bores them. They'll literally mm-hmm. say, I get bored doing the same stuff over and over again, right? So if you can put into a checklist, that's great. But how do you learn the checklist? Well, you learn the checklist vastly faster if you understand that it is the foundation for you making judgments under uncertainty. That That's actually, uh, that's a great thought and a great um let me wrap up this particular sure. segment, and um, we'll pick that up again in, in the second half. But look, uh, everybody, you've been listening to the Voice America Business Radio Show, and this is the Your Evolving Leadership Journey program. And this episode today is with Dr. William Seidman, the co-author of The Star Factor. And we've been talking about neuroscience, and after the break, we're going to pick it up again. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be right back. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
As Tom works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention, then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when Synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com. That's blackhawkspeaks.com. Did you know that less than 2% of women-led businesses grow to more than a million dollars a year in annual revenues? Sarah Roach Lewis is dedicated to helping women shatter the million-dollar milestone. Sarah talks to women who have already achieved it. It's candid conversations about the highs and lows that come with building a seven-figure business and beyond. Whether you're just starting out or insanely close to hitting your million-dollar mark, tune into Breakthrough, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to tom at blackhawkspeaks.com. Now, back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Welcome back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey with your host, Tom Crea. And today we've had the privilege of speaking with Dr. William Seidman, the co-author of The Star Factor. So far in this program, we've been talking about purpose-driven organizations and what it takes as an individual, the, uh, the, the top performers and how to capture what the top performer does and, and transfer that learning to other members of your organization. We talked about the, some of the theory that um, Dr. Daniel Pink, I believe he's a doctor, um, in his book, um, Drive, where he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And Bill here shared um, that the order is very important. It's purpose first, then mastery, then autonomy. And that was a, a, an enlightening fact, uh, a point. So I, if you missed that part, I encourage you to listen to this and go back to it later. Now, look, uh, we also I also want to share with you this article that I read that Bill wrote a couple years ago, and it has to do with, um, if you've read the book by Malcolm Gladwell about it taking the best people, the, the peak performers are at 10,000 hours, Bill's got this article and it's titled, entitled, The Neuroscience of Self-Directed Learning, and, and he starts with saying, the best talent is almost always deeply engaged and incredibly 
productive. Wouldn't it be great if learning leaders could clone those people? And then he says, well, that's a question. He says, well, they can. And he goes on to talk about this concept of 10,000 hours. So with that, Bill, go ahead. Tell us about that article and what that means. And Because earlier you said the star factor was written in 2014 and neuroscience um, research is, uh, it goes at the speed of perhaps light. I don't know. Um, but yeah. anyway, it's, it's advanced. And so please take, catch us up to date from your book. Yeah. So um, one of the things we've done even since the book is we really focused in on this issue about what made somebody a great mentor. And how do you how do you basically proliferate the knowledge? That's in terms of like, for instance, how do you create a servant leadership organization, not just an individual servant leader at a time or lead that way? And um, when it, when we really studied mentors, what we found out is that mentors basically kind of break their their behaviors and capabilities into two domains. One is a body of knowledge that they have. And this is where I'm going to tie into the 10,000 hours. Like what is their expertise and how did they get their expertise and how can you replicate it? Secondly is how do the best ones then communicate that expertise and get other people to buy into the purpose, to develop their own purpose, to build mastery and so on and so forth. So let me focus on the the first of these things, which is what is the body of knowledge that it turned out that the best mentors, who also turned out to be the top performers, had in the organization? And it comes back to this notion of the 10,000 hours. Now, 10,000 hours as a metric, I think, was actually developed by some uh, an academic either at Tufts University or MIT, I don't remember exactly where, Malcolm Gladwell grabbed it. Malcolm Gladwell is the one who really made it uh, public awareness. Mm-hmm. And the gist of the 10,000 hours is that it takes 10,000 hours of engagement with a discipline, if you will, which is about 10 years worth of work to become an expert. And that is widely accepted um, as a sort of a metric. But I've always felt in working with experts that there were two assumptions that didn't need to apply to everybody else. One assumption was, well, actually, there are three assumptions. One is that uh, the people who did it were highly purpose-driven, but that actually never got talked about in the 10,000 hours. Uh, And the purpose-driven caused them to continue with the 10,000 hours. Um, Two is that across that span of 10,000 hours, they had a sufficient breadth and depth of experience that they developed what we would call expertise. So you needed lots and lots of very rich types of experiences in order to do that. And the third part is, based on that 10,000 hours, they looked at this whole diversity of experiences, and they integrated them into patterns, and it is those patterns that we ultimately call expertise because they can see through things very, very quickly, very, very uh, intelligently and understand where that's going. Well, it turns out then if you can go to the top performers who have put in the 10,000 hours, so you're using it as a basis, somebody's already done that, and you can say to them, of those 10 years of experiences, are there some experiences that produced a vastly higher yield in terms of you forming your expertise than other things? And they can say, yes, I had this interaction with a client. I went to this training class. I had this kind of mentor. Um, I had this experience doing this. They name a bunch of very, very concrete things that um, are where the stimulus, if you will, of their uh, experience. And they say, well, how did you fit these things together? 
And they say, well, this one was talking about this and this one was talking about that. And I saw that they kind of bolted together in the following kind of way. And so they had um, at their disposal both the sort of the refined version of what the 10,000 hours were in two senses, both the elements that were most important and how they glued those things together. Now, what is interesting is you go to the experts, you can't say to them, just tell me that stuff. They are what's called unconsciously competent. They, they, so, so make sure you make sure you expand on that, uh, so okay. everybody knows what that means. Unconsciously competent. So they are unaware of what they did and how they they got it and what they do. So if you go to them and say, "Well, an expert, you tell me what they do," they always give you a very tactical response. Okay, you have to actually interview them in a particular kind of way, which is what we developed in for doing the book, and it's in the discovery section of the book. In the Sophia platform, we've really gotten that interview process to the time where you can do it in about two hours. And so so I want to actually interrupt you there because uh, to me, this is a fascinating point because you were, you commented on two things. You said they, the, the mentors have this body of knowledge uh, yeah. and they, uh, they have, that's part one. And part two was their ability to communicate it. And to me, that was going to be the most important question. Well, okay. how do you extract that knowledge out of somebody? Because you've got technical experts in every field in all parts of the world. And some of them are really good about sharing that knowledge, which makes them great mentors and great coaches, and others aren't, and they're still very qualified technically, but they're just not great mentors or coaches. How do you pull that information out of them, or, or is it is it innate to them, or is it innate to the questioner? No, you separate those two processes. Um, okay, well, how do you do that, or is that just too complicated no, for the show? No, no, it's quite it's quite simple. It, okay. it turned out it turned out that. Um, that you can you basically separate expertise, the, the body of knowledge associated with expertise, from the set of questions and cues and prompts that the best mentors use to actually cause others to become engaged with that expertise. So what we did is we first focused on the body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and what turned out is that because the structure of expertise itself was so consistent, and it, this consists of kind of four domains, part of which I described. It's purpose. We talked a lot about that. It's organiz, organization. We call those the big steps. That's the four things I talked about. Um, uh, think about it right, basics, advanced, and how do you do it in the messy real world. But then it is specific guidance. You're in this situation. Here's some things to do. Here's a way to think about it. It's, it's a very concrete, nitty-gritty, practical way that the best experts talk about what they do. But then the fourth part becomes interesting because the best mentors then also say, now go try this. Okay, so it turned out that was so consistent. It didn't matter whether it was an an, an Intel chip designer or jack-in-the-box restaurant manager. If they were a top performer, they organized their expertise into those domains. Um, What we call purpose, uh, path to mastery, mastery, definition of mastery, and actions to build mastery. Mm-hmm. So you could go to any expert and interview them and say, tell me about how you build mastery. They could tell you that. And it turned out that that got so focused that we could literally reverse engineer any expertise, believe it or not, in a matter of hours. Now, in one sense, that's horrifying, which says, I don't care how big an expert are, the human nature of how our brains consolidate information mm-hmm. compresses it down into these very, very tight capabilities. So we can basically reverse engineer expertise and anybody can do that in very, very rapidly. That turned out to be the easy part of the puzzle. The hard part of the puzzle is where you went. <laughs> so so let, I want to share with the, you and the audience a, 
almost a traumatic experience for me um, when I was in flight school. So I'm yeah. learning how to do something in the very, very basic part of the program. And my instructor pilot's in the other seat. And um, they would roll off the throttle, which means get rid of the gas. And you immediately had to get in auto rotation mode, which is just counterintuitive. And you've got to dip the nose down and you've got to go, you got to save all that potential energy for the last moment. And you've got to lower the collective and start put to t- t- tilt the nose down. That's just not natural. I mean, you want to yeah. pull back and yeah. that's the worst thing you can do. Well, when I finally got over that first hump of that, um, I think my instructor, I know my instructor pilot knew what was going on. And he felt, okay, well, we're going to challenge this guy for the next step. So he rolls off the throttle. I immediately lowered on the corrective dip the nose down and he yanks the controls away. And I'm like, I did that, right? Why did you do that to me? Well, he says to me, didn't you see those wires? So now he's trying to get me to expand. So go ahead. What, what are your thoughts on what happened in, in that personal traumatic experience for me? Uh, yeah, so that, that's perfect. So. Um, Remember I said that the expert, the experts have this structure where they have this path to mastery where they kind of get you organized. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, just dealing with, you know, the nose dive part. And I, and I don't exactly understand what you said, but that's okay. That's <laughs> keep going. Okay. But you, you were asked to do something that didn't make logical sense for you. Right. Okay. Over that probably is a basic skill. Okay, that's going to show up of the tips. Remember I said they give tips? Mm-hmm. And then the actions, they said they would probably have you do that without having the wires in the way. Right. Well, now let's talk about advanced skills. Right. Now, the advanced skill you just talked about was the fact that not only do you have to do this mechanical part to it, mm-hmm. but you, while you're doing that, a cognitively vastly more difficult thing, you have to maintain kind of 360-degree awareness of a bunch of other factors. Right. And I, I know that's exactly what he was doing. Well, look, I, I, we've spent a lot of time on the individual part, and I want to start shifting to organizational. But I, I do have this. I wrote down another thing that, and if you want to comment on it, great. Practice makes perfect. I never believed in or I learned to not believe in because I preferred this expression. Perfect practice makes perfect. And I think what you're talking about goes feeds into this. You know, if you if you do things through the more the smarter way, if you will, um, you're not going to have to spend 10,000 hours to get to that mastery. You're going to get there much, much quicker. So any final comments on the individual side? Well, actually, let me tie those things things together. Okay, because you started to raise the question about. So what do these mentors actually do in terms of the prompts? Okay. okay. So, so literally then you have this body of knowledge, but how do you learn it in an organizational sense? And if you then say to myself, well, how do you build a great culture? How do you build a servant leadership culture? My response is one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're actually developing each person and that collectively produces this much broader environment. So in order to answer your, your bigger question, I want to go back and answer the smaller question. And I want to go back to your example of your flight instructor there, you know, basically intervening and teaching you in a really hard, messy, real world way. Yeah. Something. So I want to talk about what he did. Okay. So um, it is probable that what that you had gone through some basic training, it is quite possible even that somebody in that part had mentioned to you other things are going to happen. You can have this 360 awareness and things like that. But when you're at a basic level, cognitively, that's all you can handle. Right. Okay. So there's a progression. You build up things. Well, it turned out when we studied mentors, they literally said things like, now we're going to add a little bit of messiness to this. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Right. Or now you just, so in, in programs we develop, we say to people, embrace the messy real world because the messy real world gives you the best learning experience, really reinforces the basics, but gets you to apply things in a context. Now, I'll bet the next time you're in that situation, you were looking for wires. Oh, I was. <laughs> you, you were looking for other stuff. So by having a messy real world experience and having the instructor pointed out to you, and you engage with it, your learning about that vastly accelerated. So, so I got to ask you one more question here sure. before, because I do want to get into the organizational and we're sure. running out of time, but I'll tell you the other thing that was going through my mind. He got me that time and I was going to do my best to never let him catch me off guard again. What, sure. what, what do you, what goes in your mind when, when I say that that was my thinking my response at the time. Yeah. So number one, you're doing it because you had a compelling purpose. Part of your compelling purpose is excellence in your own right. Mm-hmm. And excellence in doing that. Part of that is you were confronted with a challenge in mastery. And let's come back again to the organizational element. Now, imagine that you have the capability to have every leader in the organization being smart having this body of knowledge provided to them, but they focus on that queuing mechanism that enables people to advance, mm-hmm. right? So imagine replicating that instructor, replicating that experience in a safe environment a gazillion times, which I understand in many cases now you do in a simulator, right? You're, yeah, yeah, you're, exactly. And, 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 you know, and so- the instructor in, introduces more and more complex things. Well, in an organization, that's what a great mentor does. And that's also how you convert from the individual level to the organization level. Okay, so let's shift to that. So sure. one of the advantages we had in the military, of course, is we were an organization of hundreds of thousands of people and you had more than one instructor pilot and there were just a, a group of groups um, that were just very, very specialized. And so back to the, let's kind of circle back to the, the audience being servant leaders. And in the Army, you know, one of the values was to be service. To, service was one of the values, sure. to be service-oriented. And we kind of talked about that in the beginning. Um, but I wanted to point it out, and I want to shift to this thing. One of the greatest things that I experienced when I was in the Army was something called the after-action review. And quickly, let me share what that is, and I'll let you <coughs> talk about that and talk about organizations. Yeah. And, and simply, it's this. After the, a major exercise, we would, we, any major exercise, we would go in, and practically any exercise, we would go in and we would ha- we had scheduled time for this review in which everybody would go into the meeting. And we, when you walked in the door of that room, whether you were a captain or a colonel or a general or it doesn't matter, or a private, you pulled off your rank and everybody contributed and you contributed in the rules of engagement where you contributed to the issues, not to the, you never challenged the person as a person, you challenged the issue. And, and it was, and I felt it created such a great environment for learning because everybody was, it was fair game to criticize performance. And then when you walked out of that room, you, you had your big boy or big girl pants on when you walked in and you pulled up your britches when you walked out and you strove to do better the next time, or is it strived? I should know that, but I can't think <laughs> of it right now. Cause I'm under pressure, Bill. You're both under <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, look, um, so please talk about the AAR and then shift to some of the things you wanted to talk about. How do we create organizations and to function that same way? Yeah. So, so remember when I talked about, uh, about the 10,000 hour rule mm-hmm. that one of the things was that, um, you uh, you have an integrative function. 
you have the 10,000 10, hours of experiences, but then you actually take the level by tying things together. Okay. Well, turns out that basically what you're doing in the after action review is an integrative function. Yeah, absolutely. So you're saying, like, uh, what worked? What worked? How did these things? It's a kind of systems thinking applied to a very practical session in the messy real world. Mm -hmm. So let me now then start to talk about how that shows up with the great mentors, because not only do great mentors say, um, I want you to go try this, but then the mentors say, then come back and talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we then do is we take that to another notch, both electronically and ideally with the equivalent to the leader of that session. We'll say to people, okay, collectively, a group of you like in the after action, you experience this messy real world thing together. Okay. As an entity, what are the things that you distilled out of that? Um, John Doe, you distilled this. Jane Smith, you distilled that. What is the collective whole that comes out of that? And it turns out uh, different perspectives produce a richer uh, debriefing, richer building of expertise. So what you're doing in the after action review, we actually do as part of our ongoing programs, which we literally have a biweekly meeting where people get together to, after having done what the mentor said, try this, they do a kind of after action review mm -hmm. and they bring it all together. Now let's talk about the humility part and the fact that people put on their, their big boy or big girl pants, as you said, right? Yeah, hold on before you do that. So, I mean, I'm just going to try to catch up to you. Sure. When you say the humility part, you're, you're tying this back to the compelling reason, aren't you? Exactly. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, we're doing great here then. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Because it turns like out again. <laughs> that, again, the top performers and the way people become most successful is when you have a compelling purpose, you are not egotistical about it. You, right. Because it is by definition about creating a greater social good, in which case, again, this notion of the egotistical star performer, they actually turn out to be quite destructive organizations. Um, you know, the, the celebrity. I can think of basketball teams that thought they were going to do win championships and they didn't, but teams with lesser per, per people won championships. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, actually. So, so I, I wrote a blog a number of years ago about the difference between Magic Johnson as a leader of a team and another guy who I won't mention because I don't Fair enough. This, other, this other guy, um, he'd score 40 points a game and his team always lost. Mm -hmm. Magic Johnson could score five points a game, but his team won. Why was that? Because the, the one who got scored 40 points, he'd get the ball. He wouldn't engage anybody. People would be standing around. It would be, he was a bomber. You know, he was about his ego. He was, a star performer in the worst sense of the word. Magic but do you Johnson, know Magic Johnson's compelling purpose? Oh, I'm, I never actually heard him say it, but I'd be willing to bet it was about creating an, a team and environment that is. I'll tell you the story, and it come from Pat, comes from Pat Riley's book, The yeah. Winner Within. Yeah. So when Magic Johnson played basketball in high school and below that, he would win championships all the time. And then one day they're winning, they're getting the, uh, the award for the winning the tournament. And he's looking around, and he's seeing all these glum faces on all the players. And he thought to himself, you know, because the coach kept telling him, shoot, 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 because yeah. he didn't win. But, you know, he didn't want it to be that way. So he was a people person. He didn't want to have people be sad after they won a championship. That just wasn't right to him. So he goes on to Michigan State, and he does it as yeah. a sophomore and goes into the NBA. So I thought I'd share that with you. No, no, and, and but that's the point. Becomes he he developed a, a true purpose in the sense of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a true purpose elevates everybody. 
And he did that. He was great. Okay. So when you come to the after action review, why do people listen? Well, because they have a compelling purpose that is a collective purpose and they want to elevate everybody. And they are willing to then engage in the integrative function in the messy rural world. So the best mentors would bring peer groups together. Mm -hmm. They would say, let's all talk about what just happened here. Right. Now, you can do that in corporations. You can do that anywhere. It turns out then, if you start to do that globally, you know, where you actually set up an infrastructure where, number one, you you take the effort to define the body of expertise for a domain, according to what we're talking about. You distill out that 10,000 hours, and it's best to have several people participate because you get a collective wisdom to it. Sure. But you then give leaders the ability to understand how people prompt, how they get engaged with the purpose. And there's, there's actually, again, there's a bunch of neuroscience on that, which says if people read a real strong purpose, they see themselves. It, it turns out that I don't have specific work on uh, this that's supportive, but here's what I believe happens. When people read about a compelling purpose, if it's in the I form, I am contributing to this greater good in this way. I am contributing to this greater good in this way. I don't think that actually is a cognitive function. I think that's a visual function. Um, okay. In neural terms, I think they, they uh, stimulate what's called the visual cortex. They literally picture themselves in this successful role. I think in your military, the, 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 already my experience is when you're doing these things, you pictured your success. You could see yourself that way. Yeah, particularly in flying. But you know what? At a very personal level, Bill, when you're talking and, and we're talking about how to get somebody over that hump and not have to spend 10,000 hours, let me just give everybody a quick, because this, this should resonate with anybody, especially if you're a parent. So our son is nine years old, and, and he got started playing baseball late. Um, and let's just say he made the, the C team this year, and he wants to make the B team next year, and hopefully the A team eventually. Um, so my goal is to you know get him associated with the best coaches, and, and get over some of his weaknesses and that sort of thing. So if you can quickly talk about that. We only have a couple minutes left, so just, just a couple minutes, but then I want to know where you're going next with your research. So save some time sure. for that um, before I have to cut you off. Sure. Um, so um, children, uh, so those who don't know, I actually started off as a kindergarten teacher. And my, I have a, a master's in elementary education. So, I remember reading and, that in, in a, I, his most recent blog. You got to check it out at <laughs> Cerebite.com. Keep going. Um, and um, it was great fun, but didn't pay much. So I had to move on. Right. Um, so my belief is for kids, the kid thing that makes them fun is that they got to have fun doing it. Mm -hmm. This has to be enjoyable. But you also, one of the things that comes out of the research on kids is this whole notion of, uh, I forgot the exact word, but it's basically it's durability. It's willingness and ability to try difficulty to work through things that are difficult and so on. So if kids are having fun, but you also have built this kind of resilience into them, mm -hmm. they will do well. The caveat I've heard again, again and again is don't over-specialize. Right. Because kids burn out and and it's turning out that the best people who contribute to society are pretty diversified. They're almost kind of a liberal arts. Yeah. And when we uh, spoke on Monday, um, yeah. Bill shared the uh, concept of, hey, Michael Jordan didn't play basketball or start playing until when? What was that? No, he's, he, he didn't make his, uh, his basketball team his sophomore year. He wasn't oh, right. good right. enough. He wasn't good enough. But he had resilience. Uh -huh. He loved it. And he came back and he became Michael Jordan. 
Okay. Well, we don't have much time left. So what, what are you doing next? Where, 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 where's your focus and anything about so, Sophia? I'm actually focusing on um, uh, what we call mobile, Sophia mobile. Okay. Which is the idea that, um, you know, when we talked about that whole section about the prompts that the experts give and how do you create yeah. servant leadership for everybody? Right. Well, suppose you have a company that has 100,000 people in it. Right. Or suppose you even have 15 people, which you don't see them very often. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea is we, we really spent some time reverse engineering what these great mentors did. And we can separate the body. There's a knowledge component that takes a few hours to build. But then there's this actual coaching, this kind of mentoring component. And we put it into technology. And so our goal was then to see, could we create on a mass basis that same physical sensation, including some of the fear, by the way, of that right, where the instructor right. jumped in, in the messy real world, feel, people feel supported, but do it through uh, technology. So that's what we're working on now. We, we're pretty far along on it. And yeah, that's fantastic. Stuff. And I, I'm going to be uh, looking to follow that as well. Um, cool. We're almost done with this show. Thank you very much for those My of you pleasure. in and, and spread the word. Uh, you want to hear more about that? Uh, next week, we'll be talking to Bill Protzman about the human factor, more servant leader type stuff. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Until next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.